If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to continue our series on God Made Love. We're going to look at uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 1. If you're looking for it in the Bible that's in the pew with you, it's on page 1088. I'm actually going to begin with a verse ahead of what I've listed here, verse 35, for a little context. So I'm going to begin in verse 35, and I'm going to go... That'll do it. All right. Verse 35, chapter 1. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to the town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy." And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will uh, will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to the offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. May God help us understand this, his word. Our theme for Advent this year is God made love. That is, the world was beyond broken. It was broken beyond repair. And so God came because the world was broken. Because man could not fix what was wrong with the world, God entered through his son, Jesus Christ. And he came in a specific way. And we're looking at that specific way that he came. Uh, uh, Pastor Dan, two weeks ago, talked about how individual brokenness uh, required an individual savior. A week ago, uh, uh, Thurman Williams, who is a, was a guest 
a preacher and a friend of mine came and explained how the brokenness of this world isn't just in the individual heart. It's literally in society. It's in the culture itself. It's ingrained societal as well as individual and centered around in our nation at this time around the races, around the ethnic cultural backgrounds and the way in which we see one another. This week, we're focusing specifically on how we're broken with regards to suffering and death. And we said that this is the reason Jesus came. We're looking at Mary's song. It begins in around verse 46. It's called often the first Christmas carol because it's the first song recorded about the birth of Jesus that we have. Christmas for many people is holly and jolly. It's good times. It's uh, rosy cheeks and uh, uh, warm and uh, cozy around a fireplace. It's a good memories. It's positive. It's why we wish one another Merry Christmas. We talk about this is the most wonderful time of the year. It's just a positive message. And even our Christmas carols carry that. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. All is calm. All is bright. Sleep and heavenly peace. You see what we're doing? We're taking what really happened and we're taking all the hard edges off and we're delivering what we perceive and think about Christmas into Christmas. What I mean by that is Mary's song calls us to a more realistic understanding of Christmas than we typically have about Christmas. This is often called Mary's uh, Magnificat, this idea that it's honest about the hard realities that we face, the reason why Jesus had to come. It's not sentimental. It's not full of beautiful things, but it is authentic. You know, if there's anything about our culture that people want is they want to taste and touch and be around something that is real, something that's not plastic, something that is not molded, something that that they can recognize in their own lives. Our picture of Mary and Joseph in particular and Jesus secondarily don't help. When we conjure up a Mary and Joseph, we import our own selves into them. And we tend to think of Mary and Joseph as Caucasian. We tend to think of them as middle class. We tend to think of them as educated people because that's what most of us are. In fact, if you want to go to Europe and you go to the cathedrals of the world, you will see Mary and Joseph and Jesus per, uh, uh, painted and sculpted as a European. Because when we began to think about these, because we don't have pictures of Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus from his day, photography is non-existent. And so we import ourselves. And, and part of that is that it even creates barriers from us from understanding just how hard a, the first Christmas really was. How authentic and real compared to our memories. When you begin to think about Mary's true circumstances, they begin to give us a picture of just how hard the birth of Jesus into this world really was for Mary. Mary was 
societally isolated. Socially, uh, she was an outcast in her own community. You see, an angel had come to her and said, Mary, I know you're not married. I know you're still single. You're a young girl. Most people believe she's 14 or 15 years old. And you are going to give birth without marrying Joseph. And he is going to be the savior that I have promised. Can you imagine as she goes back to her community and she's pregnant and, and they can do the math. Well, sometimes we think people in the ancient world are dumb, but they can do the math. They recognize that if they back up the date of when Jesus has born, oh, you were pregnant before you were married. And their minds only have two explanations and neither one are good. In their world, there's only two reasons a single girl could be pregnant. Either she had been immoral with Joseph, which was a capital offense, or she had been unfaithful to Joseph and had an immoral relationship with some other man. Those were the only two options that that her culture, that her community, where she was from, could have come to for a 14 or 15-year-old girl who was not married getting pregnant. And because of that, she carried a scarlet letter. She was isolated socially. When Jesus would be, uh, uh, when they would want to put him down, when they wanted to deliver an insult, they would say, you're Joseph's father. They don't mean, I mean, uh, Joseph's your father. They don't mean that as a compliment. They mean that they know Joseph either immorally is the father or that she was unfaithful to Joseph. It's one of the reasons Joseph talked about putting her away Quietly, because if the culture understood that at that time, they would have probably stoned her for the immorality. There's no way it would have ever crossed their mind that there could have been an immaculate conception, that that there's another explanation other than those two. Obviously, they knew about Abraham and Sarah. So to find a barren woman, have child, is not that unheard of. So Elizabeth's story is not out of the realm of possibility. But let me tell you what's out of the realm of possibility. God's the father. There's no way anyone would believe Mary when when they finally confront her and she says, well, don't worry. God's the father. That's, That's like going to school without your homework and saying, the dog ate my homework. Nobody's going to believe that. There was a a great television show in the 1970s called Welcome Back, Carter. And and the show was about a teacher in the inner city. And and he had all kinds of strange kids in the class. And one of the kids was named Epstein. And and when Epstein didn't want to do anything, when he didn't want to do the assignment, when he didn't want to take the test, or he didn't want to do the project, he brought a note from home. And the note from home would go like this. Please excuse Epstein from taking the test today. He doesn't feel well. And it was always signed the same way. Signed, Epstein's mother. It just wasn't believable. There's no way anyone would have thought possibly that the father of this child was anyone other than someone human. And so she was socially isolated, but she was also economically strapped. Her baby boy was not born in a home. He was not born in a hospital. They didn't have any. He was not born in a hotel. 
or an inn. He was born in a stable. And before you begin to think of a stable as a a cool barn for animals, it was a hollowed part of a wall, just enough where rain could not fall, but still was exposed to the elements where you would put your animals for feeding and to keep them out of the rain. That's where Jesus was born. And they were too poor to find a place for his birth any better than a stable. We know he was poor also because after his birth, it was required in Jewish law that you make an offering for that child at the temple. And they made provisions that it could be a sheep or a goat. It could be a lamb. It could could be different things. But the offering that Mary and Joseph make are two doves. That's why if you ever sing the 12 days of Christmas and it says two turtle doves, a partridge and a pear tree, that's where they get it from because Mary and Joseph offered two doves because in the Jewish law, poor people who could not afford animals, they could at least get a scrape enough money together to make an offering of two doves. And that's what Mary and Joseph offered for Jesus. The reason is Mary and Joseph don't come from money and they have no money. But she's also a political refugee. And we in the United States are starting to get an understanding of what a political refugee is. We know what immigration is like. We're a nation of immigrants. There's nobody but Native Americans who could claim to be anything other than an immigrant. Every last one of us. But a political refugee is a kind of an immigrant. It's a subset. It's a unique person that is there, not by choice, but because of remaining where they were is dangerous, hostile to their existence. That's Mary and Joseph. Because when Herod, the king, hears that Jesus is born that the Messiah has arrived, that the king of the cosmos has come, he decides to have all baby boys slaughtered so that he could get this one, so he can never be king. And so rather than face that, Mary and Joseph take this little baby boy and they go off to Egypt. And there, they're outside of the political influence of Herod until the political situation changes and they come home. They are political refugees. And yet, no matter what Mary does, her heart will break in two. No matter what she does, her boy will suffer. He's going to be bullied right in front of her. He's going to be insulted. He's going to be beaten beyond recognition, even for a mother. He's going to hang on a scandalous cross by the Romans, all in front of the eyes of his mother. And although Christmas was not, was not merry for Mary, it wasn't cozy and comfortable. It wasn't full of happiness. It was filled with joy and hope. Because there was a substance that she says, he's my savior. You know, as she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices of my savior. I am blessed 
an object of God's mercy. So let's walk through this beautiful Christmas carol, the very first one. And so one of the first things I want you to see in this beautiful song is the humbling of the strong. Let me make this point and make it as clear as I can, because in 15 minutes we'll be done. And you're going to wonder what it was all about. And, and so I want you to know what it's all about. And it is this. If you see yourself as strong, if you see yourself as special, if you see yourself particularly as you've made it a success, then the gospel is not for you. It is only for those who see themselves as weak, as not special, as wounded, as broken. That doesn't mean you haven't seen success in this life or that you haven't projected or been given power. Lots of you have. The very fact that you're in this room, in a Presbyterian church of all places, you have a mockum of of strength, of power, and of money. But if you're trusting those things, then the gospel is not for you. The only thing you need for salvation is your recognition that you have a need, that you are weak. So in case I get too far, you at least have the point. The humbling of the strong, you see that in verse uh, 51 and 52, where he says, the Lord has scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty and the rich he has sent away empty. He's talking about the rich and the powerful. When you begin to think of what's the currency of our culture, what is it that really people want in our community, what they work for, what they're willing to make great sacrifices for? If we lived in New York City, it would be money. People go to New York to make a lot of money and then leave, move out to the suburbs, move somewhere else. But here, the nexus of power. You need money to live here. Yes, don't get me wrong. But money is only important in that it gets you next to power. The problem with money and power is not money and power. Is that it's tempting to trust it. To trust it for who you are, your identity. For the last hundred years, this song has been banned in a number of countries. This scripture cannot be read in some countries of the world because there's a fear that if people heard this song, they would rise up against the powerful of their nation. In Guatemala in the 1970s, they read this over the radio and it led to a revolution. In Argentina, it was forbidden to be read in public. And what they did is they put it on posters all over the country because there is a great fear that the powerful and the rich who trust in that neglect the poor and the weak. And we've seen that in our own nation. And we've seen it wherever someone trusts in the rich and the powerful. Mary's not talking about your money. She's not talking about your position. She's talking about your spirit. 
You remember when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about those who are poor in spirit. You know there's an opposite. Not the poor in spirit, but the rich in spirit. And that's who she's speaking to in this song. Those who trust in their money and their power. She knows, just like we do, that Abraham was a rich man. She knows that Job was both the wisest and the richest man on earth. She knows about all of the fairly well-off people who were people of faith. So she's not speaking against people who have wealth or money. She knows that at some point, Jesus was once rich in heaven, but he became poor so that in his poverty, we might become rich. Mary's song is a denouncement of those who trust in themselves, their success, their identity and their power and their wealth. It's their spiritual pride she's speaking of. And therefore, Christmas people recognize that everything that we have is a gift and nothing that we have deserved. Do you see that about yourself? That everything that you have is a gift. What do I mean? If you make $47,000 a year or more, whether that's an individual or your whole household, you're in the one percenters of the world. Not the 10%, not in the upper quarter. You make more. If you make $47,000 or more, you make more than 99% of the world. For those of you who tithe off of your the money you make, and give it to the church for the spreading of the kingdom, that percentage, if you give 10%, you already are given away more than the average person in the world makes in a year. What we don't realize in Presbyterian churches or in America in general is that we live in an ecosystem that creates opportunity and wealth for us. Be glad you're in America. But please recognize, just because you're on third base does not mean you hit a triple. It means that you got a lot of walks. And that's how you found yourself on third base. Nothing you did. Nothing you deserve. Nothing you earned. You're there because God moved you there. You could have been born in Afghanistan. You could have been raised in Guatemala. But you were born and raised in the United States of America. And because of that, you have been given a great gift of being born on third base. Just please recognize you didn't hit the triple. Mary is speaking to people who think they are special. That's us. Quite frankly, maybe you don't struggle with this, but I always think I'm special. It's hard to get up in the morning if I don't think I'm special and that people need me. But the Bible is filled with people who thought they were special and they are no more. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was special. Where's he? Babylon thought it was a special place. 
Assyria thought it was a special empire. The Romans thought they were special. Nazi Germany thought they were special. The United States of America thinks it's special. The only thing that will stand forever is the word of God and his kingdom. Nothing else. There's nothing special about Bruce O'Neill. Not because of the money he makes or the position he has or where he stands in the org chart of the church. You remember Jesus' genealogy just right before this passage. He's got a genealogy there. And you will find Abraham and Mary. Wealth and poverty. You'll find Ruth and Rahab. Often, ladies, we'll have Bible studies on the the women of the Bible. And often you'll go to these studies and you'll get to Ruth. And, and it'll be weeks of everybody wanting to be like Ruth. She is an incredible exemplar of someone who had self-sacrifice for others. Great, great person. When was the last time you ever been to a Bible study where you spent weeks on being like Rahab? I've never heard of one. For those of you who are visitors, Rahab is a famous lady in the Bible who is a prostitute. And that's why we don't have Bible studies on Rahab. It's a shame. The king in the manger is a statement to our world. There are no big shots in the kingdom of God. And there are no little people either. Jesus in a manger is humbling. But not just humbling, it's exalting. It exalts the weak. If it's true that the gospel is not for the strong, it is for the weak. You see that in verse 48 and 52 where he says, The Lord has looked on and will exalt those in humble estate. The two words, humble estate, in the original language is only one word. Taponosis. And there's a reason why the translators didn't put what it really says. Because we would be offended. The Lord has looked on and will exalt those who are from the bottom of society, who are from the dregs of the human race. That's what it really says. It's for The gospel is for those who have lost in life, who have been overlooked, who have been mistreated. When Gandhi becomes the leader of India, he travels on trains and only will sit in third class. And so his advisors come to him because they don't want to sit in third class. They're the untouchables. We don't want to be near the poor. Gandhi, why do you sit in third class? You know what he said? Because there's no fourth class. He doesn't sit in... He sits in third class because there's not anything lower. Do you hear what he's understanding? He understands his weakness. It is in great need. These are the people that Jesus would have hung out with. If Jesus was around today, who do you think he would hang out with? He would be with the homeless. He'd be with the children of whose fathers and mothers are in prison. He would be with the people who have AIDS. He would be the people that know they're already broken and you don't have to convince them they are. 
This is what it means to be with a humble estate. I'm just uncomfortable with them. You're not like this, I know. But I'm uncomfortable with people who don't have my level of education or come from my background or or understand the culture. You, Your life, my life, we need to intertwine them with the poor and the disadvantaged. Not because they need us, but because we need them. We need the poor and the disadvantaged, those who have been mistreated. Why? Because they are us. They physically know they are weak. We just don't know we're spiritually weak. And we need to be reminded. I said this at the 915 service. We have a ministry of the angel tree. The angel tree in our church is a list of children whose moms and dads or mom or dad are in prison. And so we buy them gifts so that they have something at Christmas time, particularly when mom or or dad are incarcerated. And I said, we can't let. We had 12 children still left on the tree. We can't let that happen. So go down there and get those. And they did. There's only one left. And I don't know who's going to get that one out of this crowd. But understand this. You know, they, those things need to be delivered. Hopefully by the people who have them. But he, some people don't feel real comfortable doing that. So you can step up. Maybe you can't buy the gift, but you can certainly deliver them. A little earlier, you you heard of a, a future missionary. If you if you know a somebody who's going on in the mission field, they need your support. Listen, students, and we have more students at the nine fifteen than we do at eleven. This is something I've observed about popular people. Those who were popular in high school, they tend to struggle as adults. And kids who aren't popular in school, for whatever reason, they tend to be more successful as adults. I think it's because coolness and popularity wins in high school, but it doesn't win in the world. It doesn't win in life. Humility and kindness does. Remember, Herod loses. Mary wins. You and I can really grow with our understanding of Mary. We Protestants, we have too low a view of Mary. Our Roman Catholic friends could teach us much about how to understand how great a person Mary was. Not because she was wealthy. Not because she was powerful, because she was none of those. Mary is the most blessed among women who have ever lived. She has been given a place of honor. If Catholics make too much of Mary, we Protestants make too little of her. She gave birth to Jesus. She raised a child who had never been able to look at evil because his eyes were too pure. Can you imagine having a son who never did anything wrong? The first time you asked them to take out the garbage, they did it. You never heard, why? Just that whine. Every time you spoke to that child, the child did it the first time. She raised that child. She raised that child. 
You say, well, that must have been easy. Easy to raise him, but quite convicting. Because you know Mary was not like that child. Because none of us are. Mary acknowledges her need for a Savior. You see that in verse 47. Whoever rejoices in my God, my Savior. She recognizes that she is a sinner too. That's why we want to end with this affirmation. Though I'm making much of Mary, please understand the Bible doesn't give us any heroes. You ever seen those studies, the heroes of the Bible? I wish we'd stop doing those. It gives us the impression that everybody in the Bible is perfect. There aren't any. There was just Jesus. Everybody else was horrible. Abraham and Isaac, they were horrible husbands. Jacob was a pathological liar. Rahab was a prostitute. David and Solomon were womanizers. There's this great quote out of Moby Dick I love. Herman Melville, who was a Presbyterian, said this. Heaven, have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. Because we are all desperately cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Here is Mary's point. If you're broken, go to Jesus for mending. Go to Jesus for mending. Last week, Thurman was here, and and he did such a marvelous job. Do you know he brought his wife, Evie, with him? You didn't see her because the person who was supposed to pick her up, she was at the hotel, didn't arrive until after the service was over. The reason Evie didn't come with Thurman, Thurman came so early for the 8 o'clock service, but she is confined to a wheelchair, and she has been for several years now. Evie had been so abused as a child and growing up in Baltimore that just now she's starting to feel the effects physically and mentally of that abuse. Here's the good news. Because she's come to Jesus, she's not always going to be in that wheelchair. One day, she's going to be mended. Whether it's in this life or when she sees Jesus, she's going to be mended. But not all wounds are easy to see. A lot of our wounds are on the inside. And Mary still begs you to come for the mending. As long as you think you're strong, you will not come. But you're still trusting in yourself or in something else. But if you'll come for the mending, he will mend you and make you whole. He may not do it today or tomorrow, and he certainly won't do it in your time, but it will always be in his. He will mend you. Charlie Brown has Linus quote this verse from Luke chapter 1. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. If you're strong today, if you're trusting in your money and your power and your position then you have something to be sorely afraid of. Because though Jesus came in a manger, he's coming back as a king. He's not your counselor, your coach, your life coach. He's a king. And he's coming to establish his kingdom 
so you have much to be afraid of. But if, if you will just be afraid of him for one time, you will never be afraid of him again. If you will just recognize your weakness and that you need him for the mending, you have nothing ever again to be afraid of. Because not only is your king, he is your savior. And he loves you. And though you suffer and you face the greatest terrorist of all, death, he has defeated both. He suffered and he died. But he also rose. Do you see yourself as strong? Do you see yourself as weak? This child came in weakness for the weak. To save us from what makes us weak. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. I thank you for the people in this room who love you and so much want you to bring the mending to their hearts, to their souls, to their bodies. And so we present ourselves to you. Some of the scars, some of the wounds are easy to see. But many of them are on the inside and only you can see. But we rely upon our Savior to come and do this mending. Begin now, and we trust you, you will bring it to completion on the day in which our King returns, our Savior, and will make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.